0: Welcome to OnSpec, the podcast that brings you original documentaries from far corners of the world. I'm Nadine Gore. This season, we have explored how borders shape global issues like climate change, migration, war, economic disparity, and our societal norms. But in this, when a frozen conflict wakes up, our fourth episode, we explore what happens when disputed land borders shape your personal narrative. This week is the commemoration of the Armenian Genocide, when in 1915, 1.5 million Armenians were killed in the Ottoman Empire. Today, millions of Armenians in the diaspora and in Armenia remember their ancestors, who were either killed or displaced. Reporter Astrik Agopian is among them. Astryk and producer Alexandra Tien bring us a compelling tale of what happens when war becomes a part of your family's past and present. Armenia and Azerbaijan are two countries with a long history of conflict, which was mostly frozen until 2020. Astriq takes us on a journey to a village on the border of Armenia and Azerbaijan. She explores how her own childhood and family life was shaped by a war she herself had not experienced, until now.
1: <laughs>
2: Was that a gunshot? Was that a bomb or just fireworks? Hey, did you hear that? Why are there so many planes leaving the military base today? Those are the questions people in Armenia have been asking for more than a year. The fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan has
3: continued for
2: another day in the disputed region of Nagorno Karabakh. The
3: fighting continues in the
2: disputed
0: Nagorno Karabakh. It all
2: started the morning of September 27, 2020. The notification on my phone made me freeze. It was from my mother. She told me all the men back in Armenia had left to fight. My uncle, my cousins, the neighbors. War has started again, she told me. For real this time
4: Now there's been a major flare-up in violence between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region, Armenia's defense Ministry spoke.
2: That day marked the beginning of the second war between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. It's a disputed strip of land that sits in the Caucasus mountains between the two countries. Both countries are former socialist republics, once part of the Soviet Union. But even before the Union existed, Azerbaijanis and Armenians were fighting over nagorno karabakh Under Soviet rule, the region was officially part of Azerbaijan, even though it was mainly populated by ethnic Armenians. They supposedly coexisted peacefully during that time. At least, that was the official version but tensions reemerged when the USSR collapsed. The first war over this territory started in 1988. It lasted six years and took the lives of 30,000 people on both sides. The Armenians won and the region became a de facto separate state called the Republic of Artsakh. But it remained unrecognized by Azerbaijan and the international community. Occasional outbursts of violence have happened ever since, and in 2016, war broke out for four days. I'm Armenian, but I was born and raised in France. My mother left the country in the 90s, right after the end of the USSR. My father is also Armenian, but of Lebanese nationality, and born and raised in Ethiopia. His parents are survivors of the Armenian Genocide. That's the systematic destruction of the Armenian people and identity in the Ottoman Empire, which killed 1.5 million people. They fled from Turkey, and then left Lebanon for Ethiopia. And when war broke out there too in the 70s, they fled to France. I always knew that I was the only person in my family who had not seen war. I was born in 1998, a decade after war first broke out over nagorno karabakh We spoke Armenian at home when I was growing up, and we traveled to Armenia all the time, usually during the summer to visit my mother's family. All my best childhood memories take me back to the Caucasus. Wandering in the streets of the sunny country's capital, Yerevan, playing with my cousins on the playgrounds between pink Soviet buildings, heading to the village in the mountains and eating apricots and pomegranates in grandma's garden. It was my little paradise. I was also aware of the fact that there could be war again someday in Armenia. Because a frozen conflict never stays frozen. And when fighting did start again, it was September 2020. I was in France working as a journalist for a local TV channel. And that's when I got the call I would never forget from my mother. Being a grandchild of genocide survivors, a child of immigrants, I have always been interested in how our own stories and feelings intersect with geopolitics, current events and history. That's why I became a journalist. So when there was war happening in my mother's country, covering local news in France just seemed absurd to me. War had come to my family once more. My uncle, cousins and friends were fighting. So I became a freelance correspondent in Armenia to explain the consequences of the war to the international audience. Once I was there, I realized Armenians in their 20s like me, born after the end of the USSR, have never lived with or even met Azerbaijanis. So I decided to go to a village on the border between the two countries and to talk to people old enough to have known people (laughs) from the other side. Berkaber is a village in Davos in the northeast of Armenia. It is beautiful, surrounded by mountains, and only a few hundred meters away from Azerbaijan. A lake called Joraz forms a natural border, but for both Armenians and Azerbaijanis, the neighbor on the other side of the lake is the enemy. Meet Haikaz and Misha. They are Armenians who live on the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan. We're not sharing their last names because if war starts again, they could be targeted. They're both in their 70s, they worked as drivers, but also have lands they still cultivate in their village. Misha is a short man with shiny white hair and piercing blue eyes. He likes to say he's not an average peasant, his words, but an entrepreneur. His field is located right on the border near the lake. He's close to Azerbaijan, really close.
4: When you're near the lake, it's like the water amplifies voices or something. If on the other side, an Azerbaijani couple is speaking, you can hear what they say. So, if you know their language, you understand even everything they say.
2: We're talking in Misha's living room in front of the fireplace. His wife is sitting next to him. She did not want to be interviewed, but you will hear her agreeing with him on the background from time to time. Haikaz is here too. He's a smiley man with dark eyes.
3: Misha
5: is what you call a businessman, agronomic. At a time, when it was still possible to go, he went to Abkhazia, bought different persimmons, and then made the first fields of it here in our region.
2: During the USSR, Armenia and Azerbaijan were not nation-states like today. They were Soviet republics within a bigger ensemble, the Soviet Union. So borders just mattered less, populations were more mixed, but Misha and Haikas have not seen an Azerbaijani since the 90s, when the first Nagorno-Karabakh war came to an end. Their children and grandchildren have never met the neighbors from the other side of the lake. But it wasn't always like that. Haikaz says there were no Azerbaijani inhabitants here per se. But some worked in the village. He points to a set of buildings on the horizon. He says there used to be offices, a hotel and a cafe there, all staffed by Azerbaijanis. Misha agrees.
4: There used to be respect between Armenians and Azerbaijanis. We had family friendships. For example, when Haikaz's father died, it was the beginning of the first war. At night, people from the village on the other side came to present their condolences. Do you imagine? In such a situation, there used to be respect.
2: I told you earlier, I had never known war myself. And yet, its effects were always all around me. I only met an Azerbaijani once in my life. It was during my studies in Paris And you know what? Even though she was a very short and young girl, I was terrified. We had a class together, and we had to do an assignment about Nagorno-Karabakh. The whole thing was just cold, stressful, and uncomfortable. It's different for people like Haikaz and Misha. They're used to war, but they also put familiar, human faces on the term Azerbaijani. That still does not mean there is no fear or animosity.
3: It's
5: been 30 years of war firings, so people do not know what will happen tomorrow. They don't really think about tomorrow. You see, all this that I have, that I've constructed myself, it was done until the war. I was a car driver, I would save money, and on the weekends I would slowly construct my house. It was all made before wars, before the earthquake. At some point, we wanted to put concrete on the soil. Here, you see. But war happened, and we're like, that's it, we won't do it, because God knows what will happen.
4: (laughs) A small missile also arrived in the land next to our house once. But it did not explode. The problem is that we had not noticed it. It was fall and it was under leaves. We were putting all the leaves together and then we set fire to it to burn the leaves and went back home. And then we heard a strong explosion and we understood from the fire it was in the land and it exploded. All the neighborhood went out asking what is going on.
2: But they have other stories too. Misha tells me back in 2013, Azerbaijani soldiers were about to fire on the village. They were working in their fields when they heard gunshots. He could tell they
4: were close. As a man who has left everything to fight in wars before, I realized they were shooting at us for real. But five or ten minutes after that, We started hearing such a fuss coming from the Azerbaijani village on the other side. So we thought, oh, maybe we were wrong. And maybe they were not firing on us, but fired on someone on their side, there. So much noise.
2: But Misha was right the first time. And it felt like yet another reminder of this non-stop war. But then, he says something different happened.
4: We saw that three cars arrived at their military post, on the other side of the lake, facing my field. I had binoculars on me, so I started looking through them. For each car, five women came out and they got angry at their own soldiers.
2: Misha watched in disbelief as an Azerbaijani woman took off her headscarf and threw it on ground,
1: <laughs>
4: And started smashing it with her feet. And the soldiers did not move after that they left and the situation calmed down i later learned that all this fight was for us that evening when i went back to the village from the fields i asked older people what does this all mean what are the things i saw mean
2: Misha was told that if an Azerbaijani woman throws her headscarf on the ground and smashes it, it's a big deal. It means she's shaming the soldiers in front of God. She was asking them not to fire on us, he says. The women were asking, why are you firing on them? When I heard that story, I was stunned. It was the first time I heard anything like it. I tried to learn more about the incident. I knew on some level that both Armenians and Azerbaijanis did not want the fighting to start again. Especially those along the border, who stood to lose the most. But this conflict has become so tense that even interacting with someone from the other side can be deadly. I wanted to understand how, with all this in mind, these women stood up to their own soldiers and Misha and Haika even told me about it. But because I'm Armenian, I knew it was impossible for me to contact them. Doing that could put me or them in danger. So my producer Alexandra Tian, who is Russian, tried to do it herself and asked for help from Azerbaijani colleagues. In the end, we were not able to contact anyone from that Azerbaijani village. But we did get in touch with Rauf Mabadov. He's a 39-year-old Azerbaijani who co-leads Bright Garden Voices, an initiative created in 2020 to build dialogue between Armenians and Azerbaijanis online. Today he lives in the US with his family, but he was born in Sumgait, a city on the east coast of Azerbaijan. Back then, it was still part of the Soviet Union. When I heard that name, Sumgait, my heart stopped for a second. Rauf later told me he knew that, as an Armenian, I would have some kind of reaction hearing this city's name. When the first war erupted in 1988, one of the first and most horrific pogroms against Armenians happened that same year in Sumgait. Rauf was six years old then. He did not realize what was going on.
6: Uh, our next door was Armenian um, family uh, and... They had to leave after the pogroms. Um, they were saved by their neighbors, including my dad. Um, and I had a very little, because I was, I was six when all this happened. Uh, I had a very little, my knowledge is secondary. I asked all about all these questions to my dad and how this happened and uh, what was the situation. And then my, analysis, my research is about the topic I remember looking at the old photos, I would ask, who is this person? And they would say, oh, this this was my Armenian co-worker or that, uh, you know, my, my dad would say, or my mom uh, would say that someone is a, used to be a neighbor.
2: Growing up watching the conflict on TV, he says he had so many questions about the other side.
6: I would always think there's a, there's a young Armenian my age on the other side uh, who is waiting for 9 p.m. news because, you know, it was only... They would announce the news only one time a day, and then you would know what happened. Did we lose the territory? Did, did someone get killed? Was there, any ma- again, a massacre? Um, and I would always, before waiting for, you know, for the news, I would always think, oh, there's probably Armenian guy, you know, my age, uh, who is waiting for it.
2: It's part of what led Ralph to join Bright Garden Voices after the 2020 war.
6: The people who prefer talking or dialogue, to, to fighting, are marginalized in both societies. Um, and the war was a, was a litmus test for, for it because it showed in bold contours the, uh, the, the extent of the, the marginalization.
2: In other words, those who are pro-peace get lost in a sea of hate speech and emotional accusations on both sides. It can mean regular people stop seeing each other as people,
6: We believe that uh, with this uh, level of dehumanization on both sides, uh, hatred on both sides, uh, it will only lead to a third war.
2: But making dialogue happen is not easy. The pain and hatred felt by both Azerbaijanis and Armenians can seem impossible to overcome. Rauf says social media can create a space to exchange things that can't exist in real life right now, especially for young people.
6: This is very important because the younger generation have no contact, has had no contact with the opposite side, uh, whereas the older generation uh, had that uh, experience.
2: He hopes one day both sides can have a dialogue offline too.
6: Since we still have the, those generations who, who share this memory, like my, my, my parents uh, or your parents, um, we should utilize that and you know, we should show these examples of the friendship. Uh, on on both sides, or carriages, or.
2: But using social media also means exposing yourself to trolls, hate, and harassment. I asked Ralph if he believes peace is really possible, since he's doing all this work and facing criticism online.
6: The hate is so immersed, it's so embedded in in, in people's minds in, in in both countries that, and 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 they have very fresh traumas of of this pain, and the most recent one almost year into. It. Uh, this was a short war, but it was a very brutal war and was one of the first wars, full-scale wars that was almost broadcasted on, on social media with the clips and the videos. Um, and unfortunately, there are some people who are still circulating these videos uh, and uh, capitalizing on them too, so, which is basically contributing to more hatred.
2: When both countries were part of the USSR, some Azerbaijanis and Armenians married each other. It means their children are part of both cultures. No one really likes to talk about that on either side, but their existence, and the way people react to them, illustrates an inconvenient truth about our shared history. These children and the marriages they came from are like living proof that cohabitation between Armenians and Azerbaijani once existed. But after everything that's happened since, all the pain that's been injured, that history can feel impossible to bear. We talked to a man in his thirties, we'll call him Sergei. He was born in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, right before the first Nagorno-Karabakh war, to an Armenian father and an Azerbaijani mother. For his own safety, we will not disclose too many private details. An actor reads his words.
7: I come from a fairly cosmopolitan family. Uh, Both sides of my family had proud Soviet patriots and lived fairly well under that system. Uh, Each of my parents grew up without any nationalist inclinations. Uh, They met by chance. My father's cousin was dating my mother's best friend and they ended up meeting each other uh, that way. Uh, They began dating in the early 80s, a few years prior to 1988 when the hostilities began. Uh, My family migrated to the U.S. in 1993, uh, and the city I grew up in had a decent-sized community of Baku expats, uh, most of whom were Armenian. Uh, And for that reason, I I grew up with a good amount of Caucasus culture surrounding me, uh, such as food and music and the social circles that we were around.
2: Sergei spoke mainly Russian at home, and he says that the wars never affected his parents' loving relationship.
7: My family never really hid anything from me, uh, in terms of the circumstances of why we left Baku or what was going on between both countries. Uh, I grew up with quite a transparent understanding of the conflict, uh, which also allowed me to humanize it and look at it from both sides, uh, rather than see it as this perpetual civilizational clash uh, my parents are not divided by this issue, and it's never been a source of strain between them.
2: But the 2020 war in Karabakh still took him by surprise.
7: I knew the conflict had not been resolved, but I anticipated it would stay frozen for a long time. I did not see war breaking out as a likely option, and even as recently as a few months before the war, I was confidently arguing that there is a 0% chance of another war flaring up.
2: Sergei grew up in the US surrounded by Armenians, but also has Azerbaijani and other ex USSR countries' friends. His wife is Armenian and says people were very curious about him being half and half, but did not reject him because of that. Yet, after the 2020 war, and especially when he started publicly talking about his family history and his stance on the geopolitical questions, he was attacked online.
7: There are small anonymous accounts that will attack just about anyone, so I am not unique in that regard. I try to avoid inflammatory claims or riling up any emotions uh, in order to steer clear of being attacked by people with more of a black and white understanding of the conflict. My initial motivation was just to offer commentary as someone whose parents have lived through the conflict firsthand and someone who has a connection to each side. I understand people have trauma from the images of the war and feel agitated, but I wouldn't say I understand the anger and the hate that I myself get, because I take care to not anger people or alienate them.
2: Despite the ongoing tensions, Sergei thinks peace is possible.
7: Emotions are too high at the moment, and the pain is still present. Over time, later generations will be more willing to move past the issues of the past in order to improve their present and future, Uh, but this will require time to pass and will also need a new regime to take power in Azerbaijan uh, that will not be as dependent on the conflict to legitimize their own rule.
3: What Rauf
2: and Sergei told me resonated a lot with what I had learned from Haikaz, the farmer we met earlier. I asked him, after everything that happened, all the conflicts, can Azerbaijanis and Armenians ever really find peace? We will live, we will, he says. I ask him, does he mean living together or separately? Separately, he says, for now. But one day there will be a new generation and we will get closer, eventually. I told you in the beginning that I was the only person in my family to have never known a war. That isn't true anymore. I know now what it feels like to lose someone to it. What it feels like to be cut off from parts of a homeland you thought would always be there. And especially as war threatens other former USSR countries, like Ukraine, I often wonder not if I'll see another war, but when. The borders in the Caucasus were drawn in blood. And on each side of the actual border, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, there are other kinds of barriers. The older generation saw war and peace. It feels like the younger one is experimenting with war, after taking peace for granted. For me, real peace looks like a distant dream. More than a year after the end of the 2020 war in nagorno karabakh many Armenian prisoners of wars have still not returned home. Clashes happen every week. But maybe, if enough people on both sides decide, finally, to really talk, maybe one day we can start building something other than walls. I'm Astrid Reporting from Armenia for OnSpec.
0: reminder that conflicts can quietly simmer or even freeze for decades. And even when we think they are forgotten, they can resurface. That was an untold story of a not-often-reported conflict far from current news agendas. And that's what we do at OnSpec. We bring the world closer with stories you will rarely hear elsewhere. Peace talks between Armenia and Azerbaijan are happening now at the same time as these military tensions. So the way this conflict will evolve is uncertain, but maybe with a new generation, things may change. When a Frozen Conflict Wakes Up was reported by Astrig Agopian and produced by Alexandra Tian. Story editing by Elisa Resnik. Voiceovers by Amin Gudara, Andrei Popoviciu, and Trigis Gogiset Astri will join us with Alexandra on Instagram Live. She will tell us more about her family and her story, but we will also hear her latest insights from war torn Ukraine. In two weeks' time, OnSpec takes you to Peru in a new story about the so-called wall of shame dividing a city. Our journalism is supported by the IJ4EU Fund. You've been listening to OnSpec.